0: My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is the Mission Innovation Podcast.
1: And and I would say it slightly differently. Don't ask what success looks like. Ask what makes you come alive and do it. Because that is what the world needs more than anything, is passionate, engaged people who see an opportunity to work for change and and who do it.
0: Paul Schroeder is a social entrepreneur, award-winning author, teacher, former Greek Orthodox priest, and a coach. He has led diverse purpose-driven organizations over the past 20 years, with two recent examples being the New City Initiative in Oregon, focused on issues of homelessness and employment, as well as Our Car, a non-profit car-sharing company focused on environmentally sustainable transportation in Minnesota. His book, titled Practice Makes Purpose, Six Spiritual Practices That Will Change Your Life, and transform your community offers a simple method for compassionate living. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is the Mission Innovation Podcast. Paul, how would you define or explain the term social entrepreneur?
1: You know, I grew up as uh, the son of an entrepreneur. So my father uh, ran a series of small businesses He was in the Air Force uh, for a number of years and uh, actually worked for the CIA for a little while, did a a small secret mission uh, during the secret war in Laos, but uh, came back to the States, uh, married my mother, and decided that he really had this urge, this gumption to to do something uh, on his own. And so he left the military and uh, started a small electronics repair business, and then later a couple of other businesses. So I, I grew up knowing what entrepreneurship looked like. Uh, I was attracted uh, during my early years uh, to, I guess you would say, faith and, and, and social issues more than entrepreneurship. I, I kind of never put those things together. So I went on to uh, go to seminary and become a priest in the Greek Orthodox Church. But I think that I realized at a certain point in my life, and we can talk later about how that whole process came together. I realized that that I had never really gotten away from that entrepreneurial mindset or or spirit, which I think fundamentally is about reinvention. It's about creating something new. It's about bringing passion and enthusiasm and and energy to uh, to work and and to life. And so I think that. I was introduced to the term social entrepreneur by Peter Diamandis, who is the founder of the X Prize for Commercial Space Exploration. And in his book, Bold, uh, which is, is really all about uh, social entrepreneurship in, in some ways, he talks about this, this idea of bringing together the entrepreneurial spirit, which is about embracing risk and, uh, and trying new things. But but doing that not just for the purpose of increasing shareholder value, but but really doing it for maximizing the value of all stakeholders of of all humanity, I, I guess you could say. Uh, so so trying to bring together social purpose with uh, with the entrepreneurial spirit. How did the New City Initiative begin with you? What
0: was that beginning story?
1: So. Uh, as I said before, I uh, became a priest in the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, I was the uh, chancellor of the Archdiocese of San Francisco for a period of time. I ran a retreat center, which I think is really where I started to discover my more entrepreneurial spirit. The retreat center was, uh, was struggling financially. It was really a turnaround, and I had the opportunity to, uh, to be involved in, in that very challenging turnaround process, um, I became the dean of the Greek Orthodox Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. And while I was there, I became very interested in the issue of homelessness, which uh, is a big issue all across the country, but particularly in many of the cities uh, on the West Coast, Portland included. And, and I wanted to see our uh, congregation engaged around homelessness. So together with some others, we started a Greek cooking class, for people who were transitioning out of homelessness. And uh, I loved acronyms, still do, and came up with the acronym KUSINA, which is the Greek word for kitchen, but it stood for Culinary Utensils, Skills, Information, and Nutrition Alliance. And we were teaching Greek cooking classes to people who were transitioning out of homelessness. So these were folks who had previously been homeless and had recently gotten themselves into housing. And, and what I learned at the time was that the idea of housing retention, how do you help people who have been homeless and who are now housed maintain and keep their housing? That, that there's a huge work, there's a huge lift for, for people who are trying to uh, do the work of, of alleviating homelessness in helping people overcome social isolation, helping them reacclimate to what it means to, to be in housing and, and ultimately to be successful. Because a a very large percentage of people who have experienced homelessness and who become housed recidivate and and end up being homeless again. So we started this cooking class. It was taught by restaurateurs, uh, Greek restaurant owners uh, in Portland. And and one of the things I I recognized right away was that there were people uh, who were in the class who had amazing skills uh, in the kitchen. Some of them had worked in commercial kitchens previously. Others were just really, really good at it. They loved it. They came alive. I will never forget an experience that I had. I was uh, still a priest at the time. And a woman came to me who was a a student in the class. And she said, you know, that guy over there, he's a restaurant owner, right? Can, Can you introduce me to him? Like, can we talk to him like now? I mean, right now, because I really, really want to get a job. So later I found out that this woman was a sex worker and that she desperately wanted to find a way to support herself and her children that that didn't involve her her current path. And and as I learned to know the people in the class and, and listen to their stories, I felt this burning sensation inside that I wanted to do something. I wanted to find a way to help people make that transition back into employment. So there's there's the entrepreneurial side. Something caught fire inside me. And I didn't know what was gonna happen. I didn't know what it would look like. And maybe nothing would ever have happened except that uh, about two years later, I got divorced. So in the Greek Orthodox Church, you can be married and be a priest, but uh, divorced, not so much. Uh, it's Uh, forbidden to remarry as a Greek Orthodox priest, and and really not highly regarded to be divorced and to, to be a priest. And I was basically told that my time of serving a parish was at an end. And so I realized at this point in my life, I was 40 years old, that my life was going to have this completely unexpected second chapter, and I had no idea what it was going to be. It was a complete blank slate because I had envisioned myself being a priest for the rest of my life and retiring. So I had to answer the question, well, what am I going to do? What do I want to do? And what I knew was that I was getting more passion and energy and excitement in my life from these cooking classes and, and this kind of engagement than I was in just about any other part of what I was doing. And so I said, you know, let's Let's talk to some people, let's talk to some potential funders, and let's see if we can start something along the model of this Cuisina program, but find a way to help people make that transition into employment. And so that was the genesis of New City Initiative and New City Kitchen, a catering company that I started that helped train people and helped them make a transition from incarceration and homelessness into employment.
0: How would you describe homelessness in Portland at that time? What was the need you were seeing?
1: In Portland at the time, you had an increasing housing crunch or housing crisis that was really being driven by the desirability of the area. So you had a lot of people who were moving to Portland. And that's a two-edged sword. It, It drove employment So it was actually in some ways favorable as a trend for our uh, employment training program because there was lots of demand for people to work in restaurants and and in other businesses, especially service-oriented businesses there in Portland. But the market for housing was getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And the result of that was that people who were living on Uh, basically poverty wages or who were trying to make a go of it on SSI, uh, supplemental security income, or or SSDI, uh, uh, social security disability, were being pushed away from the center of the city. And and mostly they were being pushed eastward um, towards uh, the area of the city, uh, towards Gresham, uh, and and away from the center of the city where the jobs were. So on the one hand, you had... uh, an employment market that was relatively strong. But on the other hand, you had a housing market that was getting tighter and tighter and pushing people farther and farther away from employment, which is really where I became interested and still am very interested in transportation. So there were two enormous barriers that the people that I worked with struggled with all the time as they were trying to get and keep a job. One of those was childcare. Uh, just a perennial issue: finding uh, people to take care of of children who are not in school, or to take care of them after school, if need be, um, an enormous challenge for a lot of the folks that I worked with. And the other was transportation. So folks were either relying on public transportation, sometimes traveling more than an hour, multiple uh, transitions from uh, bus to light rail back to bus to get to their uh, to get to their work, sometimes relying on on vehicles that were really just the slenderest of threads, they were cars that were ready to break down. They had two hundred plus thousand miles on them. The tires blew out, the engines quit, the transmissions uh, broke, and and that could throw a, a household into crisis immediately. You think that that someone everything seems to be going great, their their job is going well, uh, their life seems to be going fine, and you turn around and you come back a week later and you find out that the car broke down and they missed a couple of days of work and they got fired and now they're ready to get evicted. So, so certainly uh, this was one of the, the reasons I got very interested in transportation was seeing this mismatch between where jobs were needed and where people actually lived. And I think that's true in, in many places, including here in the Twin Cities.
0: Paul, what were the stories that demonstrate the importance and the challenge of social entrepreneurship, given the work that you were and are doing.
1: I think of someone um, who might call Mary in a curriculum that I wrote at the time, and I'll use that name for her now. Um, Mary was someone whose story I got to know very well. She was one of the first people that I ever met uh, through the Kuzina Greek cooking class program. Mary describes herself as a miracle baby. Uh, she was less than four pounds at birth. Uh, she was born to a couple, uh, one of whom was from Portland and the other of whom was from Arkansas and they were incredibly, uh, unstable. They shuttled back and forth constantly from Portland to Arkansas and back to Portland due to uh, frequent fights and breakups. Um, she was a victim of terrible violence as a child. And one of the things that she said to me, uh, was, you know, I, I still have the belt buckle marks on my back. It will never go away. She dropped out of school in the eighth grade. Um, she made a life for herself working primarily as a caregiver to people who, um, are, were disabled, uh, which is a way that that actually a lot of folks uh, who are sort of on the margins get by as they help friends and others who have gotten uh, Social Security uh, with house cleaning and, and other uh, other daily necessities. And then one day she was riding her bike uh, across one of the bridges in Portland, and she had a head-on bicycle collision and got a TBI, a tra- traumatic brain injury. And um, everything fell apart for her. She couldn't work anymore. She couldn't remember details. Uh, She started selling her stuff to pay her rent and then eventually ran out of things that that she could sell and uh, was on the streets for the very first time at, at 40 years old. And she talks about being outside for the first time. She said that she walked for three days without sleeping because she had no idea where to go. She was terrified She tried to lay down and she could hear people in the bushes nearby breathing. Um, She was absolutely traumatized by that early experience. Um, She eventually was able to get herself on uh, SSI, Supplemental Security Income, and uh, got a housing voucher, which allowed her to move off the streets and back into housing. When I think about Mary's story and the stories of the people that I have known I think something that that really comes to mind is how early the process starts or the trajectory gets set for so many of the people that, that I knew. Um, when I see a, a homeless adult person, um, it, now at this point in my life, what I really see is a million missed opportunities because that that didn't come from nowhere. It, in many ways, I think that once you know people's stories and you familiarize yourself with early childhood trauma and the, the effects of adverse childhood experience, it's, it's not very surprising. So many people confront so many challenges, abuse, neglect, disrupted talent, uh, disrupted attachment early, early on, and uh, they struggle. They don't make it through school They adopt self-destructive risk-taking behaviors. Um, Oftentimes they become injured or disabled. Sometimes they become addicted, but fundamentally they didn't have from an early age, the support that they needed to thrive. And, And that to me is what the alternative to homelessness really looks like is, is a community where We support each other so that everyone has the opportunity to thrive.
0: As a social entrepreneur, how would you define success?
1: Something that was really impressed on me in the process of starting new city initiative and new city kitchen is how careful we have to be with how we define success or, or how we think about it. Um, I think that as Nonprofits, as organizational, as as organizations and organizational leaders engaged in trying to affect social change, there is an enormous temptation to tell success stories. Uh, We love these stories. We love to hear how people triumphed over adversity, and uh, were able to move beyond their challenges to a better place. I think that. What I came to realize as I was doing this work was that those success stories are a success story, but then you have to ask, and then what happened? And what happened after that? There's, there's a story that I really like. It's from the Confucian tradition. And it goes like this. There's a man who had a, uh, a horse and the horse ran away. And his neighbors came to him and said, what an unlucky day. It was the unluckiest day ever that your horse ran away. And then the horse came back, and it brought with it two wild horses. And the neighbors came back, and they said, "What a lucky day! Actually, this was the luckiest day ever that your horse ran away and brought these other horses back." And then there was, uh, th- and then the son of this man got up and tried to ride one of the wild horses, and it threw him off, and it uh, broke his leg very severely. And the neighbors came over and said, "Ah, oh, what an unlucky day! It was the unluckiest day that your horse ran away." But then the army came through the town, and they conscripted all the young men who uh, were of military age in the town, but because his son's uh, leg was broken, they didn't take him. So then the neighbors came over and they said, what a lucky day. It was the luckiest day ever that, uh, that um, that, that your horse ran away. And so the point of the story is you actually never know what was a lucky day or an unlucky day. You never really know what a success or a failure looks like until the end. So there were very successful days. We saw people make a transition, uh, into employment, be able to sustain themselves in housing. Uh, I remember the first person that, uh, that I helped to get a job and she kept that job for years and worked so hard. And it was such a challenge for her. And I would check in with her every six months or so and, and hear how she was doing. And, uh, she would say, you know, it's hard and it's, it's hard work, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. My husband is, is doing well but I also saw so many people who were successful for a time and their challenges reemerged. They uh, went back to bad coping mechanisms. They went back to bad relationships. They uh, recidivated uh, on drugs or alcohol. And, And so I, I think that one of the learnings for me was to say that you have to, you have to engage the work that gives you passion and energy and do the work but be very careful not to define it in terms of I'm doing this because it's successful or because I'm successful. I think that the work is life giving. It, it has to be. Uh, one of my very favorite quotes from anyone is, is by civil rights leader, Howard Thurman. He said, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and then go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And, and I would say it, slightly differently, don't ask what success looks like. Ask what makes you come alive and do it. Because that is what the world needs more than anything, is passionate, engaged people who see an opportunity to work for change and and who do it.
0: Paul, if our listeners were asking themselves, how would they grow or evolve as a social entrepreneur, what advice would you offer them?
1: So after I had been working, uh, for about seven years at new city initiative. I I wrote a book practice makes purpose, six spiritual practices that will change your life and transform your community, where I tried to really delve into these six practices that I would just, they, they were really the backbone of new city initiative. And I tried to delve into what does it really mean to embrace these practices And and I thought specifically as as someone who identifies as a social entrepreneur, um, how do these practices support and sustain someone who is trying to be engaged in this work, which can be very hard and very difficult and sometimes can be bitterly disappointing as well as wildly exhilarating? Uh, Those practices, uh, compassionate seeing, heartfelt listening, intentional welcoming, joyful sharing, grateful receiving, and cooperative building for me are, are they're the practices that sustain me. They're the practices that uh, that I go back to uh, when I find that I'm struggling or feeling dry and and lacking energy. and and I, I, I won't go through all of them. I think that two of them that I would would definitely flag uh, in this conversation, one of them is is heartfelt listening, which is really about being very attentive to what our hearts, uh, our, our, our emotions are, are telling us in, in each moment of, of each day. I think that, it, I think there's a tendency to frame sometimes faith and religious experience around the idea of being apathis is the Greek word, being dispassionate or, or almost passionless, uh, that, that we don't feel big, uh, negative emotions like anger or fear or or sadness, and you know, I mean, the the sort of contemporary term is is to be zen about things, uh, which I don't know if that's a really good uh, appreciation of what Zen actually teaches. But I think there is this colloquial idea out there that that we're supposed to just accept whatever comes our way and and not have a, a lot of strong feelings about it, and, and that that's a kind of spiritual ideal. And for me, I think that. A practice that sustains me is learning to listen to my heart and to listen to what my emotions are, are telling me, including anger and fear and sadness, because they're all eros or zest. Uh, to me, they're all currents of the same energy. And if you try to shut one of them down, you shut them all down and you end up living uh, a life, you know, to use a, a term that the that the ancients used, uh, a life of akidia, uh, which is usually... Uh, pronounced and spelled with its Latinized uh, version acedia, uh, which is basically a life without zest, a life without passion. Um, so I think that, that for me, an important part of learning how to listen to other people is learning how to listen to my own heart. Because if I'm not comfortable with what I'm hearing in my heart, I'm not going to be comfortable with uh, other people's anger or fear or sadness. I'm going to shy away from it. I'm going to try to solve their problems rather than sitting with what they're really telling me and, and trying to allow them to come to their own solutions. So I think that this, this process of learning to listen very, very attentively to the heart is, is a practice that I go back to very often. The other uh, of those six practices that I would reference uh, is one called joyful sharing. And joyful sharing is, is about sharing of ourselves without becoming entangled in a particular definition of success or failure. So learning how to give of ourselves freely without saying, okay, this is, this is what success will look like. And it, immediately by extension, this is what failure will also look like.
0: Have there been key
1: aha moments in your experience of social entrepreneurship? I think that one of the key aha moments was the recognition that the, the service that we have is not ideally set up for people who want to use it for, uh, for employment. And so as I have delved into car sharing and, and tried to more deeply understand uh, how shared mobility can affect people who have access to it, there's, there's different kinds of shared mobility. Our car runs a, a so-called two-way or round-trip car sharing service, which basically means you have to bring the car back where you found it, and you keep paying on it until you bring it back. That doesn't work great for folks who want to use uh, a service like ours to commute to work. There are some workarounds. We, we, we have a, a system in place now where we charge people a much lower price if they want to keep a vehicle overnight. That can work well for people who are commuting for second and third shifts. But but fundamentally, we realized that the nature of our service would need to change if if we wanted it to be more accessible for folks, particularly who wanted to to commute to and from work. We needed to create a one-way transportation service that is where you can pick a car up at point A and drop it off at at point B so that you are getting a car near where you live and leaving it near where you work and you're not paying for it while, while you're at work. That's something that we've been working on over the past two years that I have been CEO is, is trying to redesign the service while at the same time trying to, to find ways to better understand what the transportation needs of people here in the Twin Cities uh, really are and how we can better serve them. Paul, in both experiences in
0: Portland and Minneapolis, what have been the bigger struggles for
1: you? I think that when you're working in startups, when you are working in turnarounds, when you're doing things that involve risk, th- those things are hard. You're always trying to say, are we going to make it? Are we going to make it this year? Are we going to make it next year? You're, you're trying to, uh, to get by in some cases on uh, shoestring budgets. With our car, we are actively in the process of reinventing ourselves and that requires capital and, and it requires creativity you have to be able to to bring the best of yourself to the work day after day while also wondering like are we going to survive and and i think that that is one of the most challenging elements is is being able to i, I want the word stomach comes to mind but i'm not sure if it's the right word it's 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 the ability to live with the possibility of failure and knowing that you know, your reputational capital is on the line and, and, and saying still, I'm going to show up and I'm going to keep doing this work. And if it succeeds, then that will be one thing. And if it does not succeed, who knows what will be born out of what seems like failure. Sometimes we think that the failure going out of business is the worst thing that could possibly happen. But I think that the worst kind of failure is the failure of courage so I think there's an element of courage in in facing what it means to reinvent, and, and you're co- you're going to constantly reinvent if you're if you're doing startups and if you're doing turnarounds.
0: To face and live through that kind of risk, do you think that people are born with that ability, or do you think it can be
1: developed, and how? That's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I, I've I've read research that suggests that that some people you know, just have, I mean, one way to say it is higher risk tolerance. Another way to say it is they just have more naive optimism. I think that is really hard, a really hard question to answer. But I do think that for, for us as a human community to move forward, I believe that we need more willingness to work on problems that are really hard. Because I think that if we are risk averse and if we're not careful about how we define success and failure, it's really easy to solve easy problems instead of hard ones. And and I'll point to homelessness as an example of that. So I think that once you really enter into homelessness and understand that for, for so many people who experience homelessness, when you know their story, you understand the incredible adversity that they have faced. The incredible courage that they have shown, but but the formidable obstacles that that they're up against, and you can lose hope so easily. Uh, you can get burnt out, and, and and not be bringing the best of yourself to the work. So I think that something that 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 we need is to be able to lower the cost of failure, uh, and, and maybe even to lower the psychic cost of failure. To say, you know, not succeeding, going out of business, running out of money, like those are things that can happen. And they're not the worst thing that can happen because the worst thing that can happen is that you lose your soul. You stop trying, you stop. You you don't, you no longer bring any passion. You don't try anything new. You just keep doing what you've always been doing. So on the one hand, I I do think that maybe there are some people who have more innate risk appetite than others. But I would, would posit that, as a human community, we need to be willing to take some bigger risks and and embrace some of the harder challenges if if we're going to be able to solve some of the very big problems that uh, that are in front of us, you know, ending poverty, education, eliminating disease, decoding the human genome, exploring and inhabiting the cosmos, like we have enormous challenges in front of us and we need every human being operating at their at their full potential. And we need to create the community that will support and undergird that.
0: If there are social entrepreneurs who are looking for an area of focus, what would you point to that is ready for necessary change?
1: You know, if if I had to pick a place to focus time and energy and attention, it it would probably be in the foster care system, um, so foster care—about uh, one percent of the U.S. population is going to be homeless at at some point in their lives. So your chances of of being born and and growing up and and eventually becoming homeless uh, are about one in a hundred. But if you've been in the foster care system, about 36% of kids who are in foster care will become homeless at some point. So now your chances are one in three, greater than one in three. That's, that's not something to do with, uh, with foster care itself so much as it is with the factors that lead kids to, uh, to find themselves in foster care. But the system is so under-resourced, especially in terms of, of loving Parental homes that can invite uh, just one or two kids in and and care for them and support them uh, and and do so you know not as a, a business proposition as as sometimes can happen, but but really because they they want to uh, they want to make a difference in, in the lives of these kids. So I would say you know if you're listening to this and you are a foster parent, you are my hero because that's the place where we need so much more energy, and focus, and where we're so under-resourced.
0: Paul, you claim that social entrepreneurs need a spirituality, and that was the genesis of your book, Practice Makes Perfect. Are there other resources that you would offer that you have found helpful on that same theme?
1: So there's a text, uh, a spiritual text, that I think every social entrepreneur ought to read, and I was introduced to it by a spiritual teacher by the name of Eknath Ashwaran, Ashwaran was a, uh, a spiritual teacher, writer in the Hindu tradition. Uh, he lived in the Berkeley area, taught at uh, UC Berkeley. I think he taught the first accredited course on meditation in the United States. He wrote a, a series of commentaries on a Hindu text known as the Bhagavad Gita. And the Gita is a text that I think every social entrepreneur ought to read because It actually is a text that really homes in on this question of success and failure. And one of the fundamental premises of the Gita, as uh, Ashwaran explains it, is something called karma yoga. And the notion of karma yoga is basically that you give the very best of yourself to the opportunity that presents itself without trying to to decide what is success and what is failure. And so one of the lines from the Gita, uh, which I'm reciting from, as best I can from memory, is you have the right to action, but not to the fruit of action. And Ashwaran explains that by saying that we, we act in the world for good the best that we understand it, but we don't attach uh, the, the expectation that that is going to bring any particular kind of success with it. It may or it may not. But that's okay, because the point is really just to be engaged. The point is to, to find that place, going back to the quote from Howard Thurman, to find the thing that makes you come alive, and then to go and do it. So I would I would highly recommend uh, the Bhagavad Gita, and I'd especially recommend uh, the three-volume commentary that uh, Aknath Aishwara writes for that. And, and for folks who are, for example, from the Christian tradition or from other traditions, I mean, the great news is that... I guess in good Hindu fashion, uh, he's, he's very open to, uh, very accessible, I would say to audiences from other faith traditions, because for him, it really is about finding the, the, the deepest truth.
0: From the work of social entrepreneurship to spiritual practices, supporting that work, To definitions of risk and success, our conversation with Paul Schroeder has been wide-ranging. Resources such as the link to Paul's book are posted with this podcast on our website at missiononline.net. Appreciation to our guest and to our listeners. Thanks, everyone.